Ladies and gentlemen, today I am standing up for Horace. The Roman poet Horace was born on the 8th of December, 65 BCE. That is unnervingly specific for this program. <laughs> uh, we just happen to know the exact date. He's born in Venusia in southern Italy. His full name, Quintus Horatius Flaccus. And unlike most ancient poets, especially unlike other Latin love poets, Horace is not posh. This differentiates him from Catullus, Ovid, Tibullus, Propertius. They are all upper-class men. Horace is the son of a freedman, i.e. his father had been a slave. His father was freed before Horace was born. That's why Horace is a citizen and not himself a slave. Slaves' children would have been then slaves. What's really interesting about this, I think, we, I thought we would start with Horace's childhood, since very unusually we know something about it, because Horace is a very autobiographical poet, is that he and his father have what seems an almost anachronistically close relationship. So in Satire 6, he writes satires at the start of his career, most probably, he talks about his dad, an auctioneer, taking him to school every day. His father, in other words, was acting as a paedagogos. The word pedagogue means to lead a child, and it was a job carried out usually by a slave or a freedman in the ancient world, the act of taking boys to school. But it's Horace's actual dad who does it. He doesn't feel any embarrassment in doing a job that would normally be carried out by somebody lower status, by somebody of the status that he used to have. And Horace's father takes him to school in Rome. He wants his son to have the best education that money can buy. But also, Horace tells us in Satire 6, he wanted to take his son away from the snooty sons of centurions. <laughs> I guess we get the sense that they had bullied Horace when he was little. And so his dad takes him away to another school. Horace has definitely been on the receiving end of snobbery for his low status as a child. Nunc ad me radeo libertino patre natum, quem rodunt omnes libertino patre natum, he says. Now I return to myself, the son of a freedman, who everyone gnawed at, rodent, uh, who everyone gnawed at because he was the son of a freedman. I can't emphasize enough to you how rarely Horace repeats himself or wastes words. So the fact that he ends both those lines, Libertino Patre Natum, born the son of a freedman father, it really matters to him. Horace's father, having spent all this money on his education, doesn't pile any pressure on him. He's just not worried if Horace becomes an auctioneer, just like his old man does. Horace says of his father that because of the upbringing his dad gave him, he owes him laus et gratia, praise and gratitude. And we normally end with a nice bit, don't we? We don't normally start with a nice, because my mum and dad are in. I'm like, oh, so emotional. <laughs> so Horace finishes school in Rome and heads off to Athens. That's where you go for your higher education if you are a well-to-do young man. And he goes to Plato's Academy. Plato is obviously long dead by this point. But that's where you hang out with other well-to-do Roman young men. In Horace's case, one of those people is the son of Cicero, Marcus Cicero, who is a renowned dimwit. <laughs> But uh, Plato's Academy is also where Brutus heads to after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Horace joins him. He joins the pro-Republican cause and fights as a military tribune. So he's clearly moved up in the world. Their army, of course, is trounced by Octavian and Mark Antony at Philippi. In Ode 2-7, Horace says that he threw away his shield so he could run away more quickly. <laughs> Safe to say he wasn't fully wedded to the politics, I think. <laughs> Would you please welcome my guests, Professor Llewellyn Morgan and novelist and poet Ben Oakry. <laughs> Llewellyn, 
this poetic trope of throwing away your shield that Horace goes for when he tells us that he fights against Octavia and he fights against Mark Antony, mm -hmm. which by the time he's writing the poem seems like quite a, a risky thing to admit. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a bit of a poetic trope, isn't it? Yeah, so one of the things he's doing there is, is making a very, very strong claim. Because throwing away your shield is something that certain Greek poets did apparently a fairly regular basis. So, so Archilochus, Alcaeus, I think Anacreon chucked away his shield, or, or claimed to have chucked away his shield. So one of the things that Horace is doing is something he does quite a lot, which is making this, this incredibly ambitious claim that he's creating in Latin uh, a body of poetry that's equal to the Greek lyric poetry created by people like sort of Archaeus and, and Anacreon. So that's part of what he's doing. But also... Yeah, it's a clever way of deflecting any problem there is with the fact he's been fighting against Octavian. He was involved in this terrible battle, the most sort of brutal battle in recent Roman times, and he was on the wrong side. And what he's doing in that poem, wonderful poem 2-7 that this comes from, is actually welcoming back a friend, a friend with whom he was an officer in Brutus's army. And that's typical of Horace because he's... He's taking his private experience, this, this absolute crisis he experienced in his life. He'd, he'd gone from nowhere to great status and then lost it all at the Battle of Philippi. But he kind of weaponizes it as a message for all of Rome. The wine that he and Pompeius drink, which makes them forget everything, is what Rome should do. They should forget the civil wars. They should embrace the new age. They should embrace peace. And he's found a friend again. Rome should find its friends, should stop fighting itself, but discover its friends and, and warmly embrace its, its friends again. But this seems to me typical of Horace, because we've talked before about other poets on this show who, have a kind, who adopt a very complex persona. I mm. think with Horace, the persona is who he is, but there's often a subtext that you have to pay attention to. So he's, I think he... He is absolutely the guy who's welcoming in peace. And yet, at the same time, it looks very self-deprecating, but he's quite self-aggrandizing. He's saying, you know, I fought on the wrong side, and now it's time for peace. Also, did I mention what a great poet I am? Yeah, 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 yeah. Charm is what he seems to have had as a human being. Charm is what he has as a poet, because he manages to communicate. It's a real all. currency for him, I think. It really is, and friendship is terrifically important in everything that he, he writes. But we, reading this poetry, are in his drinking parties. We're at dinner with him. We're his friends. The, the Roman readers are also being encouraged by this charming voice to forget the differences that we had, to come together and enjoy the peace and the stability that Augustus has introduced. Horace then returns to Italy because Octavian offers an amnesty to those who fought on the losing side. He discovers that his late father's estate had been sequestered and sold. The land is distributed to veterans who'd fought in Octavian's army. So he's lost everything. And Horace says at this point, Papitas impulit audax ut versus facerem. He says, daring poverty made me take up poetry. I can't emphasise enough that you should not try that at home. Um, 99 point something percent of poets are not saved from poverty by writing poetry. Not only that, but Horace isn't saved from poverty by writing poetry. Horace is saved from poverty by getting a day job. And that is to be secretary at the Treasury. Uh, he takes a job at the Irarium, the place where bronze is kept. And thus, he begins a noble tradition of taking on a boring day job in which you have no interest at all. 
delegating the work to somebody else and then writing while you're supposed to be doing something boring. <laughs> well done, Horace. A noble bureaucratic tradition begins. Ben, when did you start writing? Did you ever have a day job? Did you do what Horace did? And it began with love poems when I was about 16, 15, 16. I wrote about 50 poems to this girl who didn't take any interest in me. And... Um, <laughs> what was that we were saying about charm as a currency? <laughs> and um, finally, I think I wrote one of my best love poems, the only one I kept and then destroyed later on, when I wrote a poem to her saying, well, I'm not going to write you any more poems. And then she became interested in me. <laughs> so there's a lesson in poetry already. Did you skive off like Horace? Did you write poetry when you were supposed to be at work? I wrote my first novel at work. <laughs> <laughs> Even longer than a poem, really. Well, it was the best thing to do. You had these papers in front of you, and underneath the papers was a novel you're writing. <laughs> and when the boss comes in, you just simply slip another paper. Uh, and it really was a perfect thing to do. Um, and I recommended it to all my friends, and they all wrote novels. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you're a fan of Horace, I think, so much so that uh, you wrote a poem for him. Yeah, I used to be Homeric. Then I converted a bit to Virgil. And then I deviated to Horace. And then I came back to Virgil. I wondered if you might read us your Horace poem if I asked you nicely. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. It's called On the Oblique in Horace. Maybe you'll translate it into Latin someday. That sounds hard. I'll <laughs> give it a try. <laughs> We're not very good at looking at life directly. Our eyes slide from the full frontal gaze at the ordinary or the profound. Direct things hide. We are better at seeing life obliquely from the corners of our minds, in the margins, on the edge of vision. We are haunted by glimpses that barely seen. We think about them more. That's what true art is for, to make us see what's important through a bending light, for truth dwells in mysterious night. By staying always oblique, always haunting, it lives longer in the mind of mankind, living longer for its mystery, its unfathomability. And so beauty in poetry must be. Being there and not being there. Something at which you cannot stare. Something that hides in, in metaphors, in paradoxes, in images, sent in, the mind, fragile yet enduring. A death that's like a rose, a birth that grows and grows. The ancient masters, when they praise, seem to be doing something else. But what they raise deepens the meaning much more than a direct song on the lyre. Deepens it into the oblique places in you, places of divine fire, where all the greatest things are known, hidden, eternal, true. Thank you. So 
The question I guess you're probably asking is, how does Horace go from being on the wrong side of Octavian in a civil war to becoming Augustus' best friend? Augustus being obviously the honorific title that Octavian takes when he becomes, <laughs> when he becomes emperor. I was literally about to say when he becomes Brian Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for those of you who are too young to have watched I, Claudius. Um, it's very hard to think of him any other way once you've seen it, I'm afraid. So, Augustus and Horace do become good friends. So much so that in Suetonius' life of Horace, which is very short, and it, you can get it in the back of some editions of Horace, and it, there's no guarantee it's written by Suetonius, but it's uh, fun to think that it probably was. He is secretary. Suetonius becomes secretary to the emperor Hadrian. Uh, so, a lot later, 100 and something years later, 100 and... 20-ish years, 30-ish years later. So he is secretary to Hadrian. He can get his eyes on palace documents. And so he can see, presumably, the letters from Augustus to Horace that he is quoting. And pretty much all of them are variations on the theme of, Dear Horace, I know I like you better than you like me, but... <laughs> It's so sweet. The emperor is writing to this poet to say, why have you dedicated some poems to somebody who's not me? <laughs> He's the emperor. At one point, he writes to their mutual friend Mycenas, the great patron of the arts, and says, um, could Horace come and be my secretary instead of hanging out with you for a bit? It's just really cute. He offers Horace a job, and Horace refuses him. They still stay friends. It is hard refusing a dictator and managing to stay pals with them, but Horace obviously has abundant quantities of charm, although you wouldn't know it from his description description of himself. He says he's very quick to anger but easy to appease. But if you're wondering how he manages to sort of inveigle his way into the higher echelons of Roman society, it certainly isn't his good looks. It must be his charm and his skill. He tells us, and Suetonius tells us, and the letters that Suetonius quotes from Augustus, that Horace was short and fat and a little bit bad-tempered. Although Suetonius mentions a rumour that he had lined his bedroom walls with mirrors. So we might be a bit racier than you expect. That's all I'm saying. It's not always easy to tell, is it? <laughs> Horace's poetry and his politics, do you think they go together? I didn't talk very much about his political poetry, um, but he does write some. His best political poetry is very oblique. He praises Augustus in particular in very subtle ways, very effective ways, but subtle ways. You wouldn't say he's a propagandist, though. I mean, he's somebody who seems like a lot of the Augustan poets to see the world in the same way as Augustus does. I mean, they've all experienced civil war. He's experienced civil war very directly, but he's also come from a place, he's come from Venusia, a town that suffered unusually in recent Italian history. So you get a strong sense of him as somebody who deeply appreciates the peace that has been achieved. Although at the same time, he's somebody who makes that piece appealing for the rest of Rome as well, that makes it acceptable for the Roman elite to step away, to leave politics for the big guys and to learn to enjoy free time. And Ben, it feels to me that political poetry is much more likely to be protest than praise these days. Do you think that's true? Yeah, uh, we, th we think of political poetry as being the poetry of anger, the poetry of the raised fist, the poetry of taking to the streets. But I, I think political poetry should be subtler than that. And you know, the, the book I just brought out called Rise Like Lions actually looks at the incredible range of subtleties available to political poetry. In my book, T.S. Eliot was a political poet, in a way. Just by a single phrase, 
you know, being pinned to the wall in, in a room where people are talking about Michelangelo, already for me is, is political. I think a political poet is one that awakens a sense of unease. And in our time, we don't think of unease also in the same way that we think of praise. But political poems like, like the one I recently about, wrote recently about Grenfell Tower is, is really meant to arouse. People are upset about many things. And it's, it's the poet's duty, in a way, to kind of gather that upset into the most powerful and beautiful phrases. He enters the higher echelons of Roman society because he writes beautiful poetry. He impresses Virgil, who's a few years older than him, about five years older than him, and Virgil introduces him to Mycenas, to this great artistic patron, Mycenas. Mycenas, in turn, is close friend to Augustus, who is his patron, and so Horace enters this very high echelon of Roman society because he can write incredible poetry in multiple forms. He can write odes, satires, epodes, epistles. He prides himself on Latinizing Greek forms of poetry. He sees himself as a great innovator of poetry. And so I thought what we would do with Horace is just look at some of my favorites of his poems. Uh, that is what I get to do, is my show. <laughs> I thought we would start with the satires, because you know me, I love a bit of snark. Horace is not as bitter as that other celebrated son of a freedman, Juvenal. A combination of chicory, coffee, and neat bile is less bitter than juvenile. So he's not as bitter as that. But he still manages to get annoyed by singers. Oh, singers, he says. It's awful being friends. If you're friends with a singer and you ask them to sing something, they always refuse. And then if you don't ask them, you can't get them to stop. Oh, <laughs> sing, sing. That's all they ever do. <laughs> oh, those of us who've ever drunk in a pub near a drama school will know that that's true. <laughs> Satire One is absolutely incredible. Perhaps it's the earliest poem that he writes, but it's like a self-help book from now. It's just extraordinary. Horace cautions us against wanting stuff for its own sake. Nil satis est inquit, creatanti quantum habeas sis. Nothing will be enough for you, he says, because you are what you have. You're not going to be happy with possessions. If that's what you are, if that's how you value yourself, it's never going to be enough. He's right, isn't he? Although it sounds suspiciously like those decluttering manuals that came out. <laughs> a year or two ago, where somebody said, oh, keep things in your house that bring you joy. And you go, okay, sometimes I'm just going to need a bread knife, though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't bring me joy per se, but it's eventual contribution to my sandwich. All good. Like, I'm not throwing away things that don't bring me joy. Then what am I left with? Two pens and, like, a sock. Uh, how is that going to help anyone? Also, these people are always anti-books because they gather dust. Yeah, they do gather dust, but here's the thing. At least I'm well-read when I'm sneezing. <laughs> empty shelves, empty mind, that's what I say. Anyway, it turns out I'm full of righteous snark today. <laughs> Horace doesn't just tell us that acquisition for its own sake is bad. He tells us that envying other people's stuff will make us miserable. That is objectively true. He says, why would you look at your neighbor's goat and waste away because it's producing more milk than your goat? Your goat is still producing milk, you big moaner. That's a good piece of advice, isn't it? I think so. Sic festinanti semper locupletio obstat, he says, there's always someone richer than you in your way. Doesn't matter how much you hustle. So don't look at the guy who's got more than you. Look at all the people who've got less than you. You'll be happier. That is good advice from Horace. I'm just saying. He moves on from satire in the 30s. Uh, his friend Trebatius, he says, suggests that he quits writing poetry altogether. That's a great idea, says Horace. Werum nequeo dormere, but then I can't sleep. 
So before he quits writing satire, he manages to write one small story, which we still tell each other now, because it's so lovely. And I have to tell you, the story of the town mouse and the country mouse is one of my very favorite Roman stories, not least because I like Latin a lot more than most people. And for a number of reasons, it's such a, a careful language, an elegant language, a very formal language, a very logical language. But do you know what it almost never is? Cute. <laughs> Latin is pretty much never cute except for the fact that the Latin for town mouse is urbanusmus, <laughs> and the Latin for country mouse, rusticusmus. <laughs> it's like the most adorable thing that's ever been said in Latin right there. I'm sure you know the story of the town mouse and the country mouse. The town mouse goes to stay with his country cousin, and he's extremely scornful of the seeds and weeds that the country mouse lives off. And he says, you should come to the city. Come to the city, stay with me, and you'll have exotic sweetmeats, and it'll all be fantastic and luxurious, and you'll love it. He says, make the journey. Carpe viam. Seize the way. Isn't that great? <laughs> this is a few years before Horace will write carpe diem. It's like a little pre-echo. It makes me so happy that you can translate it as a pun. Oh, I can't. This is, I, I realize I'm the only person who cares. It's fine. <laughs> it's just fine. And so the country mouse makes the effort. He makes the trip all the way into the city, and he's dazzled, dazzled by the sweetmeats and the treats that are there, except for the fact that the instant they get close to them, they're chased by terrifying guard dogs, mastiffs, which pursue them, and the town mouse is used to this kind of thing, but the country mouse has never seen anything like it, and he panics and runs all the way back to the country and decides he would be happier without the luxury but without the dogs, and he will be much happier if he subsists on a diet of vetch. I have no idea what vetch is, I'm afraid. I am urbanusmus all day long. I've never lived anywhere else, but I believe it's some sort of weed. That's all I've got for you. All I can tell you is that I did ask a proper gardener, and they told me that it is toxic to non-ruminants, so don't eat vetch. Also, a mouse is not a ruminant, it's a rodent. Don't eat the vetch. Anyway, eat something else, is what I'm saying. Do not eat vetch. The rural life, the idealization of the rural life in Horace. When I read him first as a schoolgirl, you shouldn't get to Horace at school, I think, because he's too old. He's yeah. a middle-aged person's poet. You should read Catullus mm. and find out about burning <laughs> with love for someone who doesn't love you back. And Horace is like, I'm fine. She seems great. There's other girls. There's, there's my 50 poems. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Ben. It was worth it at the time. But the idealization of the rural life, it's true, isn't it? Horace really just does love the countryside. He's never happier than when he gets given a Sabine farm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And he tries to convince us that this Sabine farm is a, is a sort of little hut in the middle of the Sabine country. Sabine country is you know, it's just outside Rome, but it has associations for the Romans of simplicity and, 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 and piety. This, the second king of Rome, King Numa, who after Romulus has made the place kind of secure, Numa comes along and gives them religion and morality and that kind of stuff. He comes from the Sabine country. So, you know, Horace makes us think that he lives this sort of simple life. He's got this very luxurious villa, <laughs> you know, with mirrors um, uh, in, the, in, in the countryside. But he's playing on a Roman romanticization of the, of the countryside. The Romans, because they live in a big city, are prepared to believe that the countryside is where everything that their culture lacks is to be found. They're a bit like the English in that respect. And Horace, again, is making his life, or what he claims to be his life, and it must bear some relation to his life, a kind of model for all Romans' lives, that we can all find philosophical detachment we can all find a way of calming those passions that carried us away in the last few generations if we just take ourselves out into the countryside and drink ourselves into a stupor. 
It is the British way. <laughs> Horace is a supremely quotable poet. My friend Nick calls him the king of tea towels because that's where he gets quoted so often. Nunc es bebendum, now's the time for drinking. That's Horace. Sapere aude, dare to be wise. Actually, you don't get that in a tea towel. You get that in a notebook at the library gift shop. <laughs> oh, look at you all. <gasps> library gift shop? <laughs> Yes, Radio 4, there are such places. Are there? Could we go now? You may. You may. And you may buy your special Horace notebook and you will be happy. He is a favourite for people to take these very short excerpts, but he's also quoted by other poets. Wilfred Owen, not least. Dulce et decorum est pro patria more. That, of course, is Horace. It is sweet and proper to die for one's country. He means it very much less ironically than Owen does. But you heard me right there. That's a hard C, Dulce, because it's Horace, not church Latin. If you've ever said Dulce and made it sound like he was talking about toffee sauce, <laughs> I would like you to apologise to the ghost of both Horace and Wilfred Owen. <laughs> perhaps the most famous line, perhaps the most famous two words in all of Latin literature are Horace, everyone's favourite from Dead Poets Society, carpe diem, seize the day. Except that carpe doesn't really mean seize, it means to pluck, to pick, to cull, to crop, to gather, to take as nourishment, to enjoy, to use. People always use it now, like, oh, you have to do an extreme sport, seize the day. That is not what Horace means at all. He's, he's not advocating that you go bungee jumping. Horace is saying, kick back with your friends, have a glass of wine, have a chat about poetry, seize the day to wear it out, use it to do something enjoyable. So next time someone tries to persuade you to do an extreme sport by reference to Horace, no, that is not what Horace wanted. You may correct them. <laughs> He's a very autobiographical poet. As we've discussed, he talks about his childhood, but also his tastes, his girlfriends, his love of rural life, his literary disappointments. There's one poem where he complains that readers love him in private, but then they just slag him off in public. I know, luckily writers today are nowhere near so neurotic, huh? <laughs> 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 um, he is a writer who really thinks about writing. One of his last poems, perhaps his actual last poem, The Ars Poetica, The Art of Writing Poetry. Horace tells us that epic, he's talking, of course, about the Iliad or the Odyssey, or most recently uh, to be completed, just about completed, the Aeneid. Epic, he says, gods and monsters, in other words, should begin in medias race, another frequently quoted line. It should begin in the midst of things. And oh God, he's right, isn't he? The Iliad is great because it begins in the middle of the 10th year of a 10-year war. The Odyssey begins right near the end of the time Odysseus spends getting home to Ithaca, and then we're told other stuff in flashback. Nobody ever sits through the Iliad and goes, yeah, but how did they get that? No one does that. And at the time of recording, the film Solo is likely to become the first Star Wars film not to make money at the box office. And do you know why? Because we didn't need a prequel. We just didn't need it. None of us sat as children, I would think, for many of us, like me, watching episode four A New Hope, or Star Wars, as it's frequently referred to, in the 70s, and went, yeah, but how did Han Solo and Chewbacca meet, though? Yeah, but where did they hang out? Yeah, but why is Lando Calrissian? No one cares. It doesn't matter. The cool guy is friends with the hairy guy. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Do you know how I know? Horace told me. Stop making prequels. We already know how it ends. It's boring. I'm done now. How does Horace view his own work? And it's a valid question, isn't it? For such a good literary critic, for such an acute literary critic, it would be nice to know what he thought of his own work. At the end of the third book of the Odes, Horace claims that he has created Monumentum Ira Perennius, a monument more lasting than bronze. It's higher, he says, than the pyramids of kings. It won't be eaten away by wind and rain, nor even by time. Known omnis moria, he says. I shall not wholly die. 
we've kept him alive a little bit longer. <laughs> Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Professor Llewellyn Morgan and Ben Oakley. Our producer was the marvellous Ms Mary Ward-Lowry.